You know, one, um, I was sitting here watching, trying to watch my daughter uh, sing on the screens. And I know they, they cut the screens off so the kids don't see them. But what I wish you could see is all the parents um, seeing their kids. And I, and I thought, I th- wonder, wonder why they stop. Like, why do they stop smiling and, and thumbs up and all that? Like, why can't I get a smile and a thumbs up, right? It's so encouraging. Um, but it's fun. I, I like taking pictures of people, of parents taking pictures of their kids. Um, it's often more entertaining uh, than the actual event. But anyway, this morning I want us to, to look at a text that is uh, that's probably familiar. Um, it's a text that has um, some, some application for all of us. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. I just want you to see two verses in chapter 3. And then we're going to move on to chapter 4. Before we get to chapter 4, let's look at the last two verses, 14 and 16, the last two verses there in chapter 3, where Paul is writing to Timothy, young Timothy, a, a young pastor um, there at a church in Ephesus. And what Paul says to Timothy sets up what I want to say today um, in chapter 4. He says, we have to understand the significance of the church. And in those last two verses, he says that we are the expression of God's family. We are the expression of God's family. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. And we are the guardians of God's word. Before we move further this morning, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page and that we understand the significance of who we are. Paul says to Timothy, remember this as you are pastoring, and I can say to us, remember this as we are being the church, that we are significant. The church is significant. Excuse me, we are not significant. The church is significant, and here's why. Because we are the expression of God's family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the dwelling place of God's presence, and we are the guardians of God's Word. So we'll start there this morning. Now then, in chapter 4, Paul gives some instruction to Timothy. On one hand, we see the application is to a young pastor. On the other hand, we see that Paul's words apply directly to all members of the church, especially as he says in the text when it comes to these later times. And perhaps this morning, this text will serve as a reminder Uh, to most of you or some of you and others it could be new information either way there is plenty to be gleaned from our text this morning we all have different roles in the church before we talk about what we do let's talk about kind of what we do right we all have different roles in the church some of you uh, aren't um, uh, better uh, aren't great communicators and so you change diapers right In, in a nursery you can do that god bless you Um, Some of you uh, serve in Awanas. Some of you facilitate Bible studies or teach Sunday school classes. Some of you help out in different ministries, the international ministry, the deaf ministry, the student ministry. Some of us, some of you lead us in in worship. Some of you are behind the scenes workers who never get any credit whatsoever. But whatever your role, however you are gifted, the Bible is clear that we as the church all serve in different capacities towards one goal with Christ as the head. Now, you may be a foot, right? We talk about the members of the church. You may be a foot. You may be an eyeball. You may be an ankle. 
What I want you to understand this morning is that in those places of service, your role matters. You are to play a vital role in the body of Christ. You know, for instance, that your body doesn't function at 100% capacity when something is wrong with it. The best way I can think to illustrate that is this, another confession. Last time I think I preached, I told you I passed out at the sight of, of a needle. This time, I want to tell you I've got gout, right? Anybody else struggle with gout? It's, it's great, right? 36 years old, I was diagnosed with gout at 26, 20, something like that. The doctor had no idea what it was because I was young and in shape. And I'll never forget, I, I thought that I had pulled something in my foot. I went to the doctor, and then the next day, I woke up in tears. And I crawled, I kept my phone in the kitchen, I crawled from my bed to the kitchen to call Emily Ann, who was teaching school at the time. Um, and in tears, I said, I'm okay, but you need to get home, right? And those of you that are laughing um, don't understand the pain that, uh, that comes with gout. But, but as I have suffered with this um, through, through the years, it's, it's, it's the buildup of uric acid, these small little crystal things that, that attack a joint. And I get attacked in my, my foot. And my little joint, this little joint in my foot, can absolutely put me out of commission. One part of my body isn't functioning as it should or is infected by something, and it absolutely puts me out of commission. That's the picture I want us to see this morning. That if, if, if all of us aren't functioning the way that we should, the entire body suffers. And that's why I think this text is so very important this morning. Let's take a few minutes to consider what I believe can be something that is overlooked and in being overlooked present a danger within the church. And while we do all these things that we mentioned earlier, while we serve in different ministries, while we change diapers, while we greet, while we lead worship, while we do all those things at our core, Paul points to two things that we must do in order for us to continue with integrity our ministries in our community and eventually in the nation. So with that in mind, I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. 
until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. If you, if you write in your uh, Bible, highlight that, underline that, uh, whatever you need to do to bring attention to that, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul says a lot in this text, and to summarize a few highlights, obviously we know there are some bad teachers in the church. And Timothy and, and we, as we see, are to expect more to come. The later days, as those who are falling away from good doctrine... We see also that discipline for the purpose of godliness is mandatory. We see that we are to be absorbed in the word of God, be absorbed in good doctrine. And we also see that there is work to be done both within ourselves and also for others. And so part of that work is found in our outline this morning. And so we look at Roman numeral number one. This is what we do as a church according to Paul's words to Timothy. Number one, we detect error in the church. We detect error in the church. There were teachers in Ephesus who were questioning the true teaching of the word and in turn spreading false teaching or a false gospel. That problem was a problem in the early church. We saw it a couple, I guess a few months ago when I preached about in, in Galatians. We see it in Galatians. We see it here as Paul is writing to Timothy. And also as we look around our own world now, we see there are false teachers. There's a false gospel being preached and teached and presented every single day. But specifically in our text, Paul mentions two things. Number one, we see the source of the error. There's the source and then there is the substance. First, the source. The source of these false teachings is demonic teachings. Look back at what he says. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The root of the demonic teachings is found in Genesis 3. When Satan, speaking to Eve through the serpent, says, You will not surely die, for God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. David Guzik states, since then every demonic doctrine, since the fall, every demonic doctrine has found its way back to this root. And it's this. It's the idea that we can be gods and operate independently from God. I'll say that again. These demonic teachings, this, this poor doctrine has gone back to the root, which was the fall of man. And that's where it was introduced to mankind, this idea that we can be gods, lowercase g, and we can operate independently from God, our creator. Matthew Henry comments on this verse, and he compares this demonic teachings, or this bad doctrine, to idol worship. And he says specifically, any, any form of worship of, of, of saints or martyrs or any image that would stand before immortal God and mortal man. So one source of the error is found in bad doctrine. 
The second source is found in the deceptive teachers. Paul describes these teachers as liars seared in their own conscience. Their conscience is gone. It's been cut off. It's been seared. Paul is using um, this, this imagery of, 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 of one who would who'd be branded on the forehead. An ancient practice of branding on the forehead of a criminal to distinguish to everybody else that this person is bad. This person has done something wrong. The distinguishing mark of a criminal was a brand on their forehead. The distinguishing mark of a false teacher is a seared or dead conscience. Guzik describes them as, as those who depart from the faith. Listen, those who willingly embrace falsehood to justify their sin or pride. It also takes into account those who claim to be teaching the Bible while just using it as a prop for their own ideas. And I say this to our students all the time. It's so common. I say, don't just take what I say or what any other Bible teacher or preacher says and immediately apply it and think that it's true. Rather, take it and hold it up against the Word of God and then see if it's true. Consider the Scripture yourself. And I would say the same thing to you, church. Consider the Scriptures yourself. Dig into it. Immerse yourself into the Word of God. And I think we can add to that that we are to watch the teacher. To examine his or her life. To see what he or she is teaching when he or she is not holding a Bible. These teachers that Paul was referring to had heard the truth, right? They had been exposed to the truth. They heard it, but then became numb to the truth. And then we see in verse 7 that they are teaching and saying nothing but worldly fables fit for old women. I want us to take note and, and say this, that these false teachers are not people that are going to walk into a business meeting or walk into your Sunday school class or, or while you're sitting down having coffee and say to you, my conscience is seared. I'm dead inside. I'm here to lead you astray. So follow me. It doesn't happen that way. It would be easier to spot, wasn't it? wouldn't it? but it would also be less effective by the enemy. Rather than, I, I think it happens, when, when false teaching or bad ideas come from within the church, it happens one of two ways. Number one, I think it comes from well-meaning, confused individuals. So someone who maybe is new to the faith or someone who just doesn't know what he or she is talking about. And they're not trying to stir up dissent. They're not trying to confuse anybody. They're just ignorant. The second way I think it happens is by people who intentionally stir up dissent and try to bring calamity within the church. Both, I believe, are equally as disruptive and dangerous, and both, we are, we are told, um, we, need to be, we need to address them. Both need to be addressed by the church, by believers. And so Paul is warning Timothy. He says, hey, don't be surprised by the false teaching, and then seek to act. After the source of the error, then we see the substance of the error. Paul addresses two errors by the false teachers. Number one, they deny the goodness of God. Number two, they distort the word of God. 
They deny the goodness of God and then they distort the word of God. We see these tactics used time and again in Scripture. Remember, back to what we said earlier in Genesis 3, when the serpent spoke to Eve, Satan there denied the goodness of God when tempting Eve in the garden. Satan himself distorted the word of God while tempting Jesus. The tactics are as old as time, aren't they? And yet we still fall prey to them. So as I thought about that this week, I asked the question, why? This isn't the why in your outline, this is another why. Why? Why do we, why do we fall prey? Or why do others fall prey to false teachers or bad doctrine? I think it's, I think it's simple, really. I think it's because we fail to slow down enough to actually consider what's being preached and what's being taught. It could be that we don't allow enough time for self-reflection. It could be that we need to stop taking the church and what happens within the church, both inside the church and outside the church through ministries. We need to stop taking it for granted and get serious about our continued sanctification. It also could be that we need to own our own relationship with Jesus rather than trying to ride on the coattails of our own morality. Paul outlines three things that I believe could help us in discerning the process. So we, we see the bad teaching, and then number two, we declare truth in the church. How do we declare truth in the church? We look at what Paul says to Timothy. Number one, we teach with authority. Look at what he says to Timothy in verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. One commentary says this. This is a present imperative. And it calls for this to be Timothy's and our lifestyle or habitual practice. The only way Timothy or we could obey this command continually was by daily filling by the Holy Spirit, relying on His enabling power to give Him and then to give us the desire to boldly achieve this objective. In fact, every imperative or every command in the New Testament is a reminder to us of our need to die to self and be filled with the Spirit. That's what Paul is reminding Timothy. When you teach, teach with authority. Don't teach on your own. Be willing to be used by the Holy Spirit. You can only be used by the Holy Spirit if you are daily filled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. And these are the expectations we know of Timothy as a young pastor, but what about the rest of us? Because none of us in this room is the pastor of a church. Currently, I don't think. None of us. So what, what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us as, as lay people, as businessmen, as, as, as women, whatever it is, what about the rest of us? What are we to do? Here's what we know. We teach. We teach. We have opportunities to teach every single day. But here's what I know, and I think here's what you know as well. We cannot adequately teach that which we do not know. I'll say it again. That's something you probably want to write down. 
We cannot adequately teach that which we do not know. And so we have to start with what we know. I can't tell you what you know. Your Sunday school teacher can't tell you what you know. Your accountability partner can't tell you what you know. You have to understand, you have to know what you know. I think we get wrapped up in doctrinal and theological debate and we get concerned about what someone else is is preaching and, and we should. We get concerned about holding them accountable to the issues that may be wrong and we should, but here's where my problem is. We don't know what we need to know. Paul says it in this way in Philippians. He says in Philippians 3.16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Live by what you know. Matthew Henry says, Paul shows that this was a thing wherein all good Christians were agreed to make Christ all in all. Let's start there. Let's start there with the Lordship of Jesus. Let's start there and then move on. So we teach, we preach with authority. Number two, we live with purity. Paul says in Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. We combat the falsehood by living with purity. I think there are two ways we can live with purity. We can live with purity of doctrine and then purity in life. Paul urged Timothy to live a life above reproach. He didn't want Timothy to be intimidated by his own youth or his own youthfulness, but rather he wanted him to be sure of who he was in Christ Jesus. We've heard this verse many times, verse 12. Often it's referred to um, uh, as we talk about youth, we talk about students. But look further into the passage. This is what Paul is asking of Timothy. He's asking him to think highly of his own personal holiness. He understood that people would look to Timothy. Paul understood that people would look to Timothy because Timothy was the leader of a church. Paul understood that people would look to Timothy because people looked to Paul. Paul understood that people would look to Timothy because people looked to Paul because Paul told people to look to him. You want to know what it means to live a life of godliness, a life above reproach? We see it several times in the New Testament in Paul's writings. Paul says, look at me. Watch me. Imitate me. It's a bold claim, isn't it? How many of us would feel comfortable in this room this morning to say, hey, watch me. And what I do, you do. But Paul was. And here's what I think Paul understood. It's not because Paul did everything right. He was a sinner, right? It's not because he handled everything perfectly. It's because of the way, though, he looked at and he handled everything that life threw at him. There was some built-in accountability here for Paul. You want to know what it it looks like to live a life of personal holiness, Timothy? Watch me. Church, watch me. As I thought about that this week, I thought, you know what? We need more pastors. We need more leaders. We need more dads and more husbands 
mothers and wives. We need more grandparents. We need more students who can accept and who are willing to accept the responsibility of personal holiness. More people who can echo the words of Paul and say, hey, watch me. We combat falsehood by pure living. And finally, number three, we train for eternity. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I know you've considered this before, but think again for a moment that you are now training for what is to come for all of eternity. Some of us think Christianity is passive, something that we just do on Sundays and occasionally Wednesday. It's not necessarily what I do, or it's, it's what I do, it's not necessarily who I am. But we know that it's, it's both what you do and who you are. It's for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. In verse 16, Paul says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The goal of training is the salvation of the hearer. But let me, let me pause here and say, but let's don't stop with salvation. Let's move forward with discipleship. Let's, let's train others for eternity and for some practical application. Write down Titus 2, 1 through 8. I'll fly through this. Listen. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That sounds familiar. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And so why? Why are we concerned with false teaching? Why are we concerned with pure doctrine? Why do we detect error and then declare the truth? This is what we do in the church. We root out the false teachers and the doctrine. We're able to see what is false because we know what is true. We know what's true because we have a love and a desire for teaching and application of God's word to our own life. We desire this for ourselves and also for those around us. We persevere through difficulties of life because the work of training both for ourselves and for those around us is worth it. We speak truth because we have sound doctrine. We're encouraging because we've been encouraged. We live lives above reproach because the standard has been set. Then the gospel travels. As Paul says in Titus, we are, our, our, our opponents are put to shame with nothing bad to say about us because we live victorious through what Jesus has provided for us and through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a part of a church whose membership fully grasped these truths 
and practice them every single day? I believe it's a church that would not and could not be stopped. Father God, may it be said of us that we are a church who values and declares truth no matter what. Give us boldness to correct. Give us power when we teach. God, help us to do all these things for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to give you a moment to respond to an invitation. If you don't know what it means to be in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you. Some of our counselors would love to talk to you. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us here at First Baptist Church. It's a great church. We'd love for you to be a part of it. However the Spirit is leading, why don't you respond? Let's stand as they sing. You respond. seated. Got a